This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 132, September 19, 1986. Today we have a special treat. Otto and I are here with Joseph McAuliffe, another of our Calcedon staff members, and we're going to interview uh, Joseph McAuliffe today. Joseph, why don't you start by telling our listeners, something about yourself and your background. Okay, well, Rush, first of all, it's a delight for me to be here with both you and Otto. And as an Easy Chair subscriber myself, I want you to know how much I deeply appreciate this program. Tell you a little bit about myself uh, and my background. I, uh, my entrance into the Christian faith came in 1971. I was a junior at Bowling Green State University in Ohio, and uh, I was studying history at the time, but uh, I was also very actively involved in the counterculture movement, had long hair, and uh, was a part of the whole hippie thing, which was popular during that period of time. And my conversion came out of that experience where two young men from Campus Crusade for Christ presented me with the claims of the gospel, and the Holy Spirit was working in my life in such a way that for the first time I responded to the words of the gospel. I'd been brought up in a Roman Catholic family, but by the time I was in high school, due to uh, uh, many reasons, the most being generally I was a pretty wild partier on Saturday nights and uh, rarely felt like going to church on Sunday mornings. But anyway, during my high school years, I fell away from any kind of semblance of a relationship to the Christian faith. So uh, when I was 21, I made a full-fledged profession and commitment of my life to the Lord. I spent six months uh, right after my conversion at a Christian training center in Mansfield, Ohio, where I got my basic introduction to the Christian faith. Uh, much of the teaching, though, that I received during that time was... Uh, very premillennial and uh, dispensational. Uh, next to the Bible, the first book I read was Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth. And so I lived in uh, an imminent anticipa anticipation of the coming of Christ. At the training center, uh, just to uh, exhibit my faith, I used to sleep in the upper bunk, uh, thinking that if Christ was to return, I would be one of the first to go up. <laughs> Uh, back then, what was popular in many of our meetings was uh, uh, invariably someone during our religious meeting would make the statement that it's highly probable that before this meeting ends, Christ will have returned. So uh, having this as an introduction to my Christian faith pretty much put me in a state of what I would call future block. Remember Alvin Toffler wrote the book Future Shock, uh, my future, though, had been pretty well blocked out from me, and I couldn't decide what to do, if I should go back to college, if I should uh, marry this girl that I was deeply in love with. Everything was in a state of uh, abeyance. Um, anyway, I ended up returning to college in, in Bowling Green, Ohio, and began witnessing of my newfound faith. And that summer, uh, approximately 30 students uh, committed themselves to Christ, and we started a prayer fellowship. I continued on with my studies, 
but our prayer fellowship grew and uh, I more or less evolved into the ministry and uh, pastored in Bowling Green, Ohio for oh, the better part of the last 15 years with the exception of a two-year stint out here in California during 1979-1980, uh, which is where I met you for the first time. Then in 1985, uh, my wife and I, along with eight other families, moved from Bowling Green down to Tampa, Florida to plant a new church in the Tampa area, and that's where we now reside. Where were you reared? What was your hometown? Well, my hometown is Syracuse, New York. Uh, yes, and uh, someone close to your family at that time was uh, Father Hesburgh of Notre Dame, was he not? Well, that's right. Father Hesburgh is a Syracuse native and uh, was a close friend of my parents. In fact, he married my mom and dad in South Bend, Indiana, a good number of years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, there's another aspect to your life that I think is very important. Your ministry in the area of business. Tell us about Business Graham, about your contact with people in the area of business and uh, something of your perspective there, Joseph. Okay. Um, When I was in college, I started off as a business major my first quarter. Actually, my first two years in college, I shifted my major each quarter. I was a multi-major person. (laughs) Ended up uh, settling in history and... uh, But when I finished college and uh, got married, I ended up managing a restaurant in Bowling Green, Ohio, and uh, learned a good amount of basic business principles through my job as manager of the restaurant. I should also say that my father had somewhat of a formative impact on my relationship towards business as a young person. He uh, was in commercial real estate and oftentimes would take me and my brothers out for rides and show us different properties and uh, explain to us the mechanics of selling real estate. But I wasn't really that much of a business person as such. However, uh, uh, managing the restaurant, I did get a basic education in it. And I was a Christian at the time, and so I began to really seek God about applying some scriptural principles to the management and the operation of the enterprise. Um, some of the things the Lord taught me were very simple things like the importance of advertising We had our restaurant had done very little advertising and uh, I got an idea one day of offering this special that whereby a person could get a uh, roast beef sandwich uh, french fries and a coke for a buck and we started this dollar day special which became quite popular to such an extent that there used to be lines that uh, on Wednesdays when we had our Dollar Day special that formed all the way out to the street. Uh, the owners of the restaurant were quite surprised as to what was taking place in, in the restaurant. It was basically being kept open as a tax write-off. It was losing about $3,000 a month. However, within three months of my management, the uh, restaurant, which was a franchise restaurant, moved from uh, near the bottom. There was 110 of these restaurants in the country. I think we were 105th. But within three months, we moved up to number one and stayed number one uh, during the tenure of my reign as manager of the restaurant. Probably, though, the most significant development for me in terms of getting involved in business took place 
And I know this isn't a mutual admiration society we have here today, but it did take place as a result of me reading your book, The Institutes of Biblical Law. I made reference earlier to my early theological training, which was very dispensational, to such an extent that, uh, to me, the kingdom of God uh, was irrelevant for this present dispensational age, that I saw the, uh, the Christian age, the church age, being likened to a parenthetical period, uh, not quite a deviant period, but uh, nonetheless uh, a period that was awaiting a greater period to come, which was to be the kingdom age, which would come back when Christ returned. Well, your book upset my theological apple cart totally, and all of a sudden I had to come to grips with the reality of God's kingdom being here uh, today, and that uh, that God had supplied us with a, uh, a strategy and tools for the implementation and the expression of his kingdom through his law word, and that uh, the scriptures were absolutely authoritative and reliable uh, for addressing every area of life. One of the verses that became very prominent to me at this period was in Psalm 119, 128, where the psalmist declared, Therefore I esteem right all thy precepts which concern everything. And that gripped me as to the total comprehensive relevance of the Word of God that concerned everything. And the thought passed through my mind was, could I actually find a subject that the Scriptures did not speak relevantly and authoritatively to? And I saw that it, I just could not come up with an area where the scriptures did not make some application to. And then I saw that it was the responsibility uh, of the church to be a prophetic voice to the earth in terms of the explication of God's law to every sphere of life. The uh, church that I was pastoring uh, had a fairly good business school, Bowling Green State University, had a, a fine business department. In fact, during the early 70s, the Ford Foundation had ranked it the fourth best business school in the state, or excuse me, in the country. I guess that wouldn't be saying a whole lot. We're just saying the state of Ohio, but it was a good business school, and a lot of our people in our church had come out of the business department. Many of these were young men who uh, had gotten jobs in the area, uh, yet because of our faith and our eschatology at that time, which had been dispensational uh, and quite dualistic, I should add, uh, callings for us were something that uh, were very spiritualized. When we looked at uh, what the scriptures had to say about the subject of calling, we generally had the tendency of identifying that simply with the area of ministry, that, if, that the call of God and ministry, for that matter, was something that uh, would be occupied by a prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist, etc. And uh, if you had a calling to business, then that was uh, somewhat of an inferior status, occupying what you might say the coach section of the kingdom of God. <laughs> and so your book was a, re was a revolutionary book for us. And uh, we began to then, and I myself began to do a thorough study of like, what the scriptures had to say about Christianity and business. 
And lo and behold, I found that it had just a multitude of uh, things to say about, particularly finance, economics, and business. One Bible teacher um, had done a study of the subject. His name was Howard Hendricks, popular evangelical teacher. He had done a study and discovered that there were more that there were over twice as many references in the scriptures to the subject of finance, economics, and business than there were on all the verses related to prayer and faith combined. And what startled me was that uh, how seldom I myself had preached about economics and business. And uh, if I were to line up or list down all the sermons I had preached for the previous seven, eight years, uh, had a whole host of them on, on prayer and intercession and faith and trusting and believing God, but just a scant view on finance. Of course, I, like every other pastor, memorized Malachi 3, 8 through 12, which has a definite economic reference. Those are the verses that speak to the subject of the tithe, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. I often tease that's one of the very first verses that pastors memorize. <laughs> and when they do teach on the subject of money, that's that's the one they'll go to. But, again, uh, basically a studied indifference towards applying the scriptures to the business realm. To continue on, what took place uh, as a result of my studies, this was around the year 1980, uh, myself and several of the businessmen in my church uh, began to see the need for uh, a publication that would be addressing the subjects of business, finance, and economics from a biblical perspective. So at that time we started uh, the publishing of Business Graham, and, uh, and I think Business Graham has, I believe, made some contribution to the body of Christ in terms of at least trying to make a statement of the, of the relevancy of our of our faith to the marketplace, and that's like what we try to do in business. Yes, Otto. Otto Scott, as you know, has a background in business and in industry. Otto, let's hear from you. Well, I think it's a fascinating story, Joseph. Uh, how much did they teach you when you went uh, when you finally majored in business? How much? Uh, emphasis was placed upon ethics and was any emphasis at all placed upon religion? Not at all. Of course, I was going to a state university, but then again, I have talked to others who have gone to Christian universities and are receiving their MBA in, from Christian universities. Most do have some uh, A course that would deal with ethics. But uh, it's it's not a very prominent topic, even in the Christian universities, and of course in the state universities, like the one I went to, uh, there was absolutely no attention given to the subject of ethics. That's interesting. At one point, I had a proposition to McGraw-Hill. I wanted to write a book about how the Harvard School of Business did its business. <laughs> and that would be an explosive subject. Well, I wanted to know how much money they charged. I wanted to know how they advertised. I wanted to know how they marketed their courses, what they paid their professors, and how much profit they uh, obtained in the whole business. Mm -hmm. 
and the they turned McGraw Hill turned it down, and I said, well, why why uh, why don't you like it? I'm sure it'd be popular, be interesting. They said, well, it would uh, we get a lot of business out of Harvard, and we have a lot of uh, a lot of writers and and editors and so forth that have gone through Harvard, and uh, we don't want to make any enemies. <laughs> I, I said, well, now why do you assume that it would be uh, hostile? Why do you assume they wouldn't come out very creditably? And they said, we don't know, but we don't think they would. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that in itself tells a lot about Harvard, mm -hmm. that uh, people associated with it, working with people who come from Harvard, are distrustful of the quality of their school of business administration. And I don't think that would have been limited to McGraw-Hill. Well, I know George Gilder uh, came out with a statement not too long ago where uh, Harvard has not produced, well, with maybe uh, two or three exceptions, an entrepreneur in the last 10 years. That most of these students, as a result of their training there, are all set to go right into the institution and uh, that is go into a large corporation and occupy some management position. Mm -hmm. But in terms of having the kind of uh, entrepreneurial training or orientation that would put them in a position of going out there to create a new business, uh, it's just not taking place. Well, my observation was that business school teaches you everything except how to raise the money. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, if you can't raise the money, you can't get into business. Also, there are certain elements of, uh, you probably remember the author's name, Rush, and I don't offhand, the lesson on how to be a courtier. Uh, Castiglione. Yeah, that's it. And Castiglione's book on how to be a courtier reminds me very much of the business school cases that I've looked at. Mm -hmm. uh, I know I talked to Jerry O'Neill of General Tire, and he took the Harvard business course, mm -hmm. and he had to sign up for two years. They wanted him to sign up for one, and he, or he wanted to sign up for one, and they said, no, you must come in for two years, the full course, full program. So he did, and then he quit at the end of the first year. <laughs> and I said, why did you quit? He said, well, they were teaching everybody to training everybody for my job, and I already had my job. <laughs> What's been your experience, Otto, as far as the knowledge of the actual business they're managing that these uh, MBAs have? Well, I've gotten that impression at second hand by dealing with the products, with the young men who've gone through it. Uh, they are presented with the case history approach so that they're given a manufacturing problem or an executive choice problem or something of that sort and they're supposed to come up with what's the best possible solution and it's it's an offshoot of the game theory mm -hmm. but my own experience in corporate life has been that uh, playing the, they you cannot teach a fellow how to play the game if he doesn't understand the essence of the game mm -hmm. now Unlike Hollywood, for instance, which has men fighting in profane terms in the executive suite, mm -hmm. 
I've never heard bad language on the top levels. Nobody uses bad language. Everyone is courteous because your your collaborators, your partners, or your associates are all men of proven ability and intelligence. You don't want to insult their intelligence in any way. On the other hand, you have to be absolutely candid about the situation because if you're not, your report is worthless. Consequently, honesty is the number one quality or qualification for a top position. And this I have never heard referred to in business schools. But if a man once discovers that he cannot rely upon your reply, you become utterly useless to him and to everyone else in the company. Mm-hmm. And that's in that sense very much like a court of law where one lie from a witness is enough to have his entire testimony thrown out as worthless mm-hmm. because how can you rely upon uh, what he says at any other time? On the other hand, I kept running in recent years. In recent years, I kept running into younger men from the middle of the tree, you might say, who didn't know that and who kept trying to probe, probe me to find out what I expected to hear mm-hmm. so they could give me what I would like to hear. And of course, this is exactly what makes them unfit for elevation. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are issues, however, that I have never heard openly discussed. Mm-hmm. I've heard them discussed in the, uh, in the top level. Mm-hmm. I remember when I first joined Ashland, telling tales out of school, I fired a man within two weeks in the departments that were reporting to me because I caught him in a lie. And uh, the others, the other men said, well, uh, it didn't take you long. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there was no criticism of that particular decision. Mm-hmm. Now, if this were more... Uh, more discussed. If, for instance, business would do the elementary thing, take the elementary step of Mm self-defense, when a program is presented on television showing a bunch of lowlifes in the executive suite shrieking at each other, using Mm -hmm. foul language, Mm -hmm. and behaving in unethical ways, if business would immediately say that's a ridiculous program, and the writer, the writer is betraying ignorance, of the American society and uh, how it operates, Mm -hmm. it would go a long way toward destroying some of these malevolent myths that have been created. Mm -hmm. It's funny that business, uh, having as one of its primary uh, characteristics the whole field of public relations, you know, we think of advertising and marketing in general, has done such a noticeably poor job in terms of uh, the public relations of its own enterprise, business itself. Mobile Oil, I know, is at least taking a stab at that through its editorials that it publishes and newspapers to try to bring out that, uh, hey, business isn't all that bad. We're not all crooks, which is how, for the most part, the media portrays the modern businessman, the businessman as con. And I agree with you, Otto. I think that uh, business does need to come to its own defense, so to speak, and say, this is absolutely foolishness, how we're being portrayed. 
in our TV programs and movies, etc. Well, my experience, pardon me, Dr. Head. My experience in PR uh, was that the average corporation only wants itself defended. Mm-hmm. It doesn't want to get involved in an issue where it isn't directly uh, concerned on the theory that if this is a, uh, an exercise in altruism which isn't going to bring any profit back. There's also a deeply rooted idea in the American society that a dispute turns people away and creates enemies. And we've got to the point mm-hmm. where, socially speaking, no one is supposed to disagree. Mm-hmm. If you disagree, you're, you're, you're causing trouble. You're, you're exhibiting hostility. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're ruining the party. Mm-hmm. The hostess gets terribly upset. We'll never invite you back. We'll never forgive you. <laughs> and, and your wife will uh, abuse you later and so forth. Uh, and in most many instances. So therefore we have no discussion. Back at the end of the 40s, in the very beginning of the 50s, one man connected with the National Association of Manufacturers uh, could see what was beginning to develop. And I heard him speak on one occasion when he said in effect that what industry should have was its own anti-defamation league. Hell, indeed. But uh, he found no one interested. And, of course, since then, the National Association of Manufacturers has gone only in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. It's not interested in defending itself. It's trying to please the enemy too often. Well, then you could take this very easy shift, this particular observation to the Christian community. Yes. When I grew up, the Christian mm-hmm. community didn't believe in defending itself. And you recall, I'm sure, that old cliche of American social life in the last generation that we will not discuss politics or religion here. Mm-hmm. We want to have a good time. Mm-hmm. We want to get along with each other. Mm-hmm. So, And in fact, I believe that there is still some lingering sense of this to the effect that there are Christians who believe that to come to the defense of the faith is unchristian. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't, we should rise above it. Mm-hmm. And here you are engaged with businessmen mm-hmm. and with Christians. So therefore you have a double-barreled uh, set of reflexes against which to operate. And I'd like to know how you've been doing uh, with it. Well, I I think that what the primary thing we're trying to do is uh, is to in giving a biblical perspective of business is to bring out that business is a ministry uh, of God. It's an it's an aspect of the kingdom of God, and we're just making reference to how business needs to defend itself. I also believe that the church, if it's a prophetic church would also be making a defense of the business realm. Yes. One of the things Roussas was so helpful in my thinking in terms of was understanding the various governments that comprise the spheres of life. Uh, I believe this was common in Puritan thinking, but that there were six or seven various spheres of institutions, ordinances of God, you might say, that were relevant to this life. It was self-government, family government, church government, civil government, 
And then business and vocations was seen as a separate governmental sphere. And uh, I believe culture may have been the other one. I'm not quite sure of that. But if business is seen in that light, that uh, that it is a creation of God, that it's a, a ministry and it's, act, and it's an activity in life that God has ordained, then to me that elevates business to a new plateau, to a higher plane. And um, that's one to me like one of the foundational responsibilities that the church has. Then as our men and women engage in the business sphere, they see that they're not going out into a corrupt, bad, evil, inferior <laughs> environment, but rather they're going into a definite area of legitimate ministry that's of God. And I believe that that will, you might say, elevate the whole plane in our thinking towards uh, the business realm, which I believe is a realm that is greatly maligned in our world today, and it's particularly maligned in our churches. Oh, wonderful. There's a point I'd like to uh, make at this uh, time. You referred to the various spheres that are directly under God, not under the state or under the church. That kind of thinking developed very early in the history of the church, goes back to the Old Testament, was first formulated in its early form by Pope Gelasius II, and the Puritans developed the same kind of sphere thinking, only they called it covenant areas. Then Abraham Kuyper in the Netherlands developed it to a great extent at the end of the last century, early years of this century. I do believe it is very, very important to our future to develop the implications of that. Each of these spheres, independently of one another, not being governed by one another, but under God. That's basic to the Christian faith. Uh, I'd like to uh, ask you, Joseph, at this time, to tell us two things. First, uh, the address where people can write to to subscribe to Businessgram and the cost of subscription. And then second, why you didn't follow the family uh, desire and tradition and go to Notre Dame. Okay, well, <laughs> to subscribe to Businessgram, or if one would just like a sample issue of our publication, uh, you would write to Businessgram, Post Office Box 21, Bowling Green, Ohio, 43402. And uh, you mentioned uh, why I didn't go to Notre Dame. My dad is a Notre Dame alumni, and Notre Dame alumni are... I think as strong as they come uh, in terms of their commitment. I can remember as a young boy, uh, every year my parents taking the annual religious pilgrimage to South Bend to witness one of the holy events of autumn, which was another game <laughs> football game. <laughs> and uh, I was very much impressed by the campus and the university. It's a fine academic school as well. Yes. But one thing they lacked at that time was the female population. <laughs> and being a red-blooded American boy with strong male hormones, I just could not see going to that institution at that time. 
so I went to Bowling Green in Ohio. Ohio. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you should bring up on Groen and uh, Prinster also, because Cal Thomas sent me a note recently saying that he and some of his associates in Washington are passing around some literature on that subject. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, probably you should, Joe, think of that in your efforts to put together literature for these business Christians. Yes, I think this point of the spheres or the covenantal units uh, that we've been discussing is so significant because if it's properly taught and understood, to me, it's the death knell of dualistic thinking, Yes, which I see so prominent in our churches today. We know right from the first century that the early church wrestled with dualism through Gnostic teaching and the popularization of Manichaeanism that came in shortly after that, that Augustine uh, was an early ascriber to. But the whole uh, division between the spirit and the realm of matter, the division between the material and the immaterial, or to take us into the Middle Ages, the dichotomy that Aquinas fostered with the nature and grace. Um, I believe when we understand the, the kingdom of God, and also a doctrine that's vitally related to this, of course, is the doctrine of creation, that, uh, that God is the sovereign, that he is the source of all life, material and immaterial, spirit and soul, or body. And to me, this breaks down to me what I perceive to be a great problem, even amongst Christian businessmen today, is that of uh, not really accepting their calling as a holy calling under God to be businessmen operating in the material world. I sat in a meeting in Denver, Colorado, two years ago with seven chief executive officers of corporations, and these uh, seven CEOs were all professing evangelical Christians. Each one of them, in turn, expounded to me that they saw that their primary function as of a CEO was to be an evangelist, that their businesses were merely platforms so that then they could have opportunities to communicate the gospel. Now, what I went on and said to those men is that I was touched and appreciated their evangelistic desires and even the evangelistic aspects that, that are inherent to the business world. But what came out, Russianato, was a, was a discomfort in these men towards business. That once again, it was that inferior thing, that making a profit and and the whole rigmarole of operating in the nuts and bolts world of the business world was something that was tainted almost with yeah. evil. And uh, I addressed the men on that, that uh, and encouraged them, and, and that if they could see that, hey, God created business as a ministry. This yes. is we're talking about something that is wholly under God. I believe there's a verse in Zechariah that talks about the pots and the pans being called holiness to the Lord. That yes. This whole uh, this whole uh, this defining of uh, of the material as something evil is something that in my opinion must be done away with. Very good. Uh, the, you mentioned the point. You use the word spirit. Mm -hmm. 
and this is what is denied. Now, journalists uh, have been encouraged and propagandized and propagandize each other into believing that they're working for the betterment of society, that essentially they're involved in a noble calling. And I was at the I was at the Overseas Press Club in New York. I've been a member there for many years. And one of the men said, "Are you still getting money from the fat cats in the oil industry, Otto?" And I said, "Well, yes, I am." And he said, "I, I really don't see how you can do it." And I said, "Do what?" He said, "Get along with those business bastards." Hmm. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Well, if you have any pretensions to be a writer." And you want to see the effect of money, power, and influence on men. I don't see how you could stay away from business. Mm-hmm. Business is the arena of action mm-hmm. of our society. Mm-hmm. Our society operates on it. Mm-hmm. When we look back at the medieval society, for instance, what do the historians examine? They examine how the prince or the baron or the count handled his territory, took care of his people, protected them, fed them, employed them, directed them, led them, and so forth. It wasn't the troubadours that made his that made history. And it isn't the novelists that are making our history. It's the businessmen. Mm-hmm. And not to understand that is to not understand what makes our world. Exactly. It's it's the undermining of the sphere of business that is also the gateway to totalitarian governments who play on the whole whole Marxist thought of the class struggle is basically to try to get the people to revolt against the business sphere, the business world. And then, of course, when that type of revolution takes place, uh, it's business that suffers. But then as business suffers, the people suffer, the economy suffers, and what you end up then with is a slave state. Yes. And this is like why I'm concerned with the anti-business message that's being proclaimed in our media today. People don't realize the, the insidious consequences that will come out of this, uh, that when we continue to pass legislation that is anti-business to the core, and I just want to comment right now, Congress is, seems to have finalized this tax reform bill, this tax simplification. We always fret when we hear the word reform coming out of Washington, D.C., because generally speaking, it's always the opposite of, of, of reformation. In fact, we probably be more uh, appropriate to call it tax deformation. And even in this most recent proposal that at face value looks as though it's going to help us as individuals with now there only being two uh, tax rates and supposedly the tax rates are lower in terms of filing our personal returns, we've got to understand that though this is coming at the expense of business. Business is now being expected to pick up the slack by the lower individual tax rates. What we've done is we've cut the uh, investment tax credits, which really had gone a long way to fuel capital development and new industries, and to even uh, improve uh, the machinery and equipment uh, in our older industries, that uh, in our manufacturing sector, which has been suffering so much of late, the investment tax credit that was in our tax code 
which is now being repealed in the new bill, uh, is definitely going to have consequences on our economy. Secondly, uh, the corporate tax uh, is going to be going up for businesses. It's interesting, shortly after Reagan came into office, he had the audacity to, in fact, I believe he was in New York at the time, to come out and question whether or not there even should be a corporate tax. Uh, of course, the media jumped all over him, and uh, he the next day retracted his statement. And In fact, a year ago, he was in Tampa, Florida, speaking to a group of senior citizens and said that uh, he was going to ask the corporations to begin paying more taxes and, and lower the individual rate. But people don't understand that in one sense, there really is no tax on corporations, that whenever we raise the, the taxes in the corporate sector, it's the individuals that are going to have to pay for those taxes through the increased prices uh, for the goods that are produced, uh, and also uh, the increased taxes uh, for businesses uh, make it that much harder for business to operate in our country. And uh, it, it will contribute to us continuing to lose more of our business to our foreign competitors. Yes. So I'm very concerned about like what has gone on in Washington D.C. Uh, our legislature, our legislators. Uh, I have a brother who's very, very actively involved in uh, government back in Washington D.C. And he's also a successful businessman. And he made a statement to me that 90% of our representatives know nothing of business. They're lawyers. They're attorneys, right? Yes. And uh, they don't understand that business is at the heart and soul of our country, uh, and that when we begin to mishandle the whole business sphere, it has implications for every other sphere, from, our, from employment right on to, to the kind of government with the possibility of a totalitarian government being able to make it more conducive for that type of thing to take place right here in our own country. The determining movement in the modern era since at least the French Revolution has been the Romantic movement. And the Romantic movement has uh, idolized everything that is impractical, uh, unrealistic, and in a very real sense sick. As a result, business has been a main target of the Romantic movement from the early years. Well, we heard echoes of that from Mr. Emerson and mm -hmm. others yes. who talked about satanic factories yes. and uh, wage slaves and so forth. Uh, the deindustrialization of Great Britain was in large measure attributed to the hypnotic fascination with the aristocracy, which didn't believe in toiling. Mm -hmm. uh, which believed that trade was a step downward and that mm -hmm. somebody in trade couldn't be a gentleman, end quote. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a great deal of that now because what most people don't seem to realize is that much of the wealth of the United States is now inherited wealth. Mm -hmm. Despite the inheritance taxes, there are many, many families that are now in their fourth and fifth generation of inherited wealth. And... There seems to be, with the business of inherited wealth, a certain guilt complex mm -hmm. uh, where men feel, I suppose, in their heart that they're enjoying the fruits of labors they didn't indulge, that they didn't do, mm -hmm. and that therefore they have to sort of pay a penance to society mm -hmm. for it mm -hmm. in the sense of helping the other fellow. Now this fits in, of course, with the Christian idea of charity. 
But charity is something which really deserves a hard look. I recall the uh, publisher of a very good magazine in New York at one time asking my advice as to what to do about an alcoholic writer. He said he has a wonderful wife and a wonderful family, but he said he uh, he has this terrible problem with drinking, and what should how should we treat him? I said, well, how do you treat the writers on your staff who don't drink? He said, well, we, we take care of them. Well, I said, why should you take care of a man who doesn't do his job? In what way are you helping his family? What mm-hmm. sort of a lesson are you giving his children? Mm-hmm. He said, well, that's very hard-hearted of you. I said, well, <laughs> you asked me. <laughs> but uh, here we get into the essence of life, and you cannot separate the private sector, the business sector, from the society in which it functions. Mm-hmm. And But what we have watched is a sort of a semantic shell game yes. in which people have been addressed. Uh, let, let's put it this way, and this, this is not an original thought. I wish it was. I read it by a, a woman economist. She said, a clergyman's wife would never attack Christianity. A doctor's wife does not attack medicine. But a businessman's wife will attack business. Mm-hmm. Good point. Very true. Very true. Without feeling disloyal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, businessmen themselves will be apologetic for what they are in many, many cases. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because they've been given a bad conscience by the culture. Mm-hmm. And this is the problem you had with those businessmen. They had to be apologetic. They mm-hmm. wanted to be imitation ministers. Yes. They mm-hmm. wanted to be lay mm-hmm. preachers mm-hmm. instead of doing what they were called to do. That's right. If, well, I were, if I were to ask them to define business from what they would say a Christian perspective, they would say that a business is, is intended to lead souls to Christ. Now, there, to me, goes to the sphere confusion again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe that every sphere has its primary responsibility to glorify God and then carry out that function. For example, to me, the, minister, the sphere of the church has the responsibility to glorify God and to disciple nations. That's our commission. Mm-hmm. When I look at uh, the sphere of business, it's to glorify God and to generate profit. Uh, there and so, but there's a distinction between the two. The common bond is, no matter what we do, whether we eat or drink, we're to do all to the glory of God. But doing the glory of God in the business sphere is different from doing the glory of God in the church. Well, work is a form of worship. Mm-hmm. Um, Rush is a theologian. I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm a writer, and and uh, a writer on a certain level, which translates the ideas of better men to be candid about it to lesser men. Hmm. I wouldn't put it that <laughs> way. <laughs> but uh, the idea that uh, has crept in in our day about full-time Christian service being the ministry or mission work is one of the most deadly ideas to infiltrate the church because it has stripped other uh, vocations from being callings of God. Mm-hmm. But if we take the scriptures seriously, every man where he is 
is called of God to serve him in his place. So everyone who is a Christian is equally called yes. to full-time Christian service in their particular vocation. And those who refuse the call are doomed to unhappiness. Yes. That is certainly true. They're frustrated. They find themselves laboring in fields for which they are unsuited or for which they are only mediocre. Mm -hmm. And they do not succeed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Calvin said there is no ethical superiority between the merchant and the minister. I I believe that accurately sums up... uh, or at least resolves the the problem of, uh, of this dichotomy that's often drawn out. One point I want to make reference to, though, is that I believe that there, uh, amidst the darkness and the despair and the problems in Washington and in our economy today, there's there's light in the on the horizon. Just as similarly, we are seeing in the sphere of education through the development of Christian schools, uh, hope for our educational futures, even hope for this country as a result of the influence that our Christian educated children are going to make upon future society here in the United States. I believe there is a work of reconstruction and restoration taking place, and I believe this is also beginning to take place in the sphere of business. Now up to this point I've mentioned some of the problems and the negative responses and the dualism that we see in our churches today in relating to business. However, there is a move taking place throughout our country where Christian businessmen are beginning to come to grips with this message of the kingdom of God and that business is a ministry and that uh, their calling in business is a noble calling. Uh, and even a new entrepreneurial spirit is taking place amongst Christians who have broken out of this uh, these false faiths and have begun to embrace the message of uh, of the kingdom of God and the dominion mandate that we are called to go forth and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and are beginning to lay hold of those kinds of exhortations and a good number of the businesses that are being created and generated in our country today are, is coming from is coming from Christians, and these are the ones that I'm beginning to work quite extensively with, and I'm very much encouraged by it. And men and women who really want to take the precepts of Scripture and apply the revelation of the Word of God to every facet of their enterprise, and I get calls like. Uh, you know, could you give us information on uh, on marketing and advertising and and production and accounting uh, from a biblical frame of reference? I get calls where people say to me, "God has opened up a new business for us, uh, or the Lord showed us that uh, He wanted us to start this new business, and He has." And, and, and in many of these cases, uh, the businesses are doing quite well, and they just want further information as to how they can steward that business to make it as successful as they can. And here's my conviction. I believe God is raising up businesses in the Christian community right now. And I believe the purpose of it, one of the purposes, there's many purposes that have to do with enhancing a man and a woman in their calling, which is so important that a person will not be fulfilled unless they're functioning in the call that God has given them. And oftentimes by working in some Philistine organization or some other kind of enterprise that is not related to uh, them being able to live out their Christian faith, 
They're extremely frustrated, and so the creation of Christian businesses is providing a tremendous outlet for men and women to fulfill their calling. But even aside from the personal benefits that result from operating a business successfully on biblical principles, I see on a larger frame of reference something eschatological that's taking place. You know, Isaiah prophesied several thousand years ago that there was going to come a time when the wealth of the nations were going to come to the people of God. And I believe that God wants to and desires and intends to bring wealth into the body of Christ, not simply so that we can be rich, but in order to accomplish the mission that God has given to us, which is to disciple nations and to do the kind of discipling, cultural discipling that needs to take place in the nations requires great sums of wealth. And I believe that the means, I believe that the way God's going to bring that wealth into the body of Christ, I don't believe he's going to rain it from heaven as he did like when the children of Israel left Egypt where people were just throwing their jewelry and bracelets upon God's people as they made their exodus. But I believe he's going to teach men and women uh, basic principles of business success. And and that as God's people are obedient and faithful, I believe God will bless them. And as they are blessed by God for operating their business in such a manner, God will bring great sums of wealth into those businesses, which in turn will then be channeled into the larger Christian work Mm -hmm. of discipling the nations. And I'm beginning to see that happen. Well, in Bowling Green, you were responsible for 28 new entrepreneurial businesses. So, you've been a pioneer in this field, Joseph. Well, it's and it's it's taking place in in a lot of a lot of places throughout the country. It's it, it's really good. What happened to us in Bowling Green was uh, Bowling Northwest Ohio during the uh, early 80s was hit by a tremendous recession. Unemployment was 17, 18 uh, percent. Most of the work was tied into the automotive industry, which was going through uh, very tough times. Uh, work was scarce, and we, as a group of leaders there, needed to uh, address the situation. And the conclusion we came to is that we could not trust. The, our families and our futures to, mere, the, to the natural economy that we found ourselves in, that in order for us to survive and thrive, we were going to have to create our own enterprises. And uh, that's like what we set out to do. And um, so we started several businesses uh, back then. And uh, the first year, I, we, I, we started eight businesses. And I want to also make a very important distinction. I do not believe in church-run businesses. Mm-hmm. Again, that blurs the spheres yes. of distinction. Uh, in fact, every situation that I've been involved in where a church has started a business has always been a disaster. Generally goes out of business within the first year because op- principles of operating a church are one thing. Principles of operating a business are different. Our, your goals are different. What's common is that we both desire to glorify God, but the church is more of a ministry of salvation and and offering mercy. When you start running a business simply on mercy, you're going to get yourself in trouble quick because sometimes you have to fire people, and that's the godly thing to do, but it's that may not be the appropriate response in the church. So it is important to keep the spheres distinct. 
but um, uh, the businesses that we started uh, have done very, very well. And uh, within two years, we had zero unemployment in our church, and we had to uh, advertise actually uh, with to other churches because uh, with several of these businesses, they just wanted Christians working in them, and we actually had to move people in. Uh, to fill available slots that we had in our businesses. Well, this is the Second Reformation, and this is really what we're talking about. I, heard, I did hear a speaker a few years ago say that he thought the Calvinists might have come onto the world stage prematurely and that this might be their proper time. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. this is really the Reformation revived. Mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. what you're talking about. The, the early Reformers in Great Britain were the industrial entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And they saw no contradiction between that and their faith. Just the opposite. Mm -hmm. Well, our time is running out. I'd like uh, our listeners to know that Joseph is working on a book on this. It'll be some years uh, before it's finished. But it will be a very important study. And we hope... In the not too distant future, we can have him here full time to work with us on this sort of thing because we are at the crossroads in the history of civilization. This is a world of crisis we are in. And our hope is and our belief is that it is Christians who are going to turn things around. Is there any last uh, word of a few seconds either of you would like to get in before we uh, finish? The only last word I have for Usas is that uh, sometimes people can hear a message like this about how God is moving in the business sphere and then go out and do something premature or foolish. Yes. In fact, a lot of my ministry deals with uh, one aspect at least is why Christian businesses fail. And uh, for the sake of our listeners out there, I really want to encourage you to not only seek God concerning getting into a new business or starting a new enterprise, but if and when you do, to get good counsel. You know, the Bible says there's a wisdom in a multitude of counselors and, uh, and to make sure that you're properly capitalized. And lastly, to not be presumptuous. One of the biggest reasons like why Christian businesses fail is because the the man or the woman will think that because uh, their business is uh, is being called a Christian business, then it will inevitably succeed. Putting a, sh- a fish shingle or a you know a Jesus logo or, or calling yourself uh, Christ Carpenters has nothing to do with success in the business world. Yes. Well, thank you, Joseph, and God bless you, and thank you all for listening. <laughs>